evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. Freeform station of the nation from Jersey City in the great state. I'm glad to be here and glad you're here. Really excited to feature a first on Tectonic. It only took six years and a couple weeks, but we are having a playwright as an interview guest. Max Friedlich joins us this evening. I interviewed him a few days ago, and we're going to play that interview as Max discusses his off-Broadway play called Job, which is playing right now at the Soho Playhouse. And, uh, and it's... It's really taking off. It's it's sold out. If you go to the uh, the website, which I've linked on the playlist, if you go to wfmu.org, click playlists and comments, you can find the link to the show, uh, which is the the URL is uh, job. What is it? Job at soho.co. Anyway, the upcoming performances are sold out, but you, Max is going to describe a couple of ways that you can still possibly uh, get yourself in to see it when I play the interview. We're going to get to that in a second. First, I also want to acknowledge that we are in October, which is the month of our October fundraiser, the Hellraiser, the Heckraiser, uh, whatever you want to call it. And as in past years, um, I'm going to say a little more later in the show about uh, about your ability to, to, to pledge, to, to give to the station. But f- b- for the moment, before, uh, before we go to the interview, I just want to say that during the month of October, WFMU celebrates the, uh, the, the, the Hellraiser by putting on all sorts of different events in Monty Hall and out in Queens. And this is the big news. The WFMU Record Fair is back. Uh, it's, it, we haven't had the, the full record fair for a while, um, due to COVID and everything, everything that's happened in the last few years, but it's coming back on Saturday and Sunday, October 14 and 15 in Queens. It's at a place called the Knockdown Center, which is on Flushing Avenue in Queens. And, uh, it's going to be 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. both Saturday and Sunday, and admission is all of $10, and you know those $10 help a lot to uh, support WFMU. So hope you will come out to the record fair and, um, and help us celebrate October. Uh, here we are in the fall, and it's a great time to support the station, as I will say more after the interview. So f- listen, let me tell you a little bit of context before we go into this interview with Max Friedlich. Uh, the the reason that I was excited to have Max on, a playwright on, to talk about a play is because, as you'll learn, the play has something to do with tech culture, tech business. And it's so unusual for a play to, uh, to discuss issues of ethics and, uh, and, and treatment of workers and the, uh, the difference in the generational perspectives on technology between millennials and boomers, uh, skipping over a certain generation, which I'll get to in the interview. Uh, A lot of topics, in other words, that I've covered on the show are touched on or explored in this play called Job. And I thought it would be really interesting to share 
this interview with all of you as, of course, we're not going to get into spoilers from the play, but you'll get a sense of what the play is about. And uh, we talk about uh, Max's background as well, which is, which is fascinating. So why don't we go ahead and listen to my interview with uh, playwright Max Friedlich uh, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Max Friedlich, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you for having me. Big, big fan, big fan of the station. Thanks so much. And I'm a fan of your new play called Job, which is running right now at the Soho Playhouse. I saw it last week and um, really thought-provoking piece of work. And I know it's getting a lot of attention. So congrats on your success so far with Job. Thank you so much. It's been really genuinely humbling and very surprising and very weird. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited about all of it and excited to see what happens. I said it was your play. Let's just establish, Max, you're the playwright of Job. And what I want to do is I want to talk about the play without giving any spoilers. So let's start with the basics. Job is a one-act play. It's set in a psychotherapist's office somewhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. Correct. And there are two actors on stage throughout the play, only two. Who are these two characters? And at least when the play starts, what do you want the audience to know is happening? Um, so the two characters, there is a older male psychotherapist um, who's sort of an old hippie type figure, like a longtime San Francisco barrier resident, sort of an old San Francisco boomer vibe. And then you, uh, his, his character name is Lloyd, but that was just to like give the, the, you, I don't think you ever hear his name in the course of the play. Uh, and then there's Jane who works for a massive tech company who is in her late twenties and sort of represents a sort of more yuppie millennial ethos. The way the play is about Jane who has had uh, a mental breakdown largely as a result of working at this large tech company. And she has a breakdown at work, is the subject of a viral video. Uh, and then as a condition of her wanting to come back to work, she is uh, mandated to go see this therapist. So that that is the sort of basic setting of the play. Right. And, and you're saying large tech company. And some of my listeners are going to want to know which large tech company and do they um, do they mention it during the play? And we can just say without giving any spoilers, the the company is never named, but it's definitely one of the monopolies out there, one of the big tech monopolies. My guess is that it's it most closely resembles Google, although um, because of Jane's role there, which we can talk about, it I suppose it could also be um, Facebook. But do you have... Um, and I know you may not want to even answer, but do you, do you have a particular tech company in mind? Um, I did when I initially wrote it. And then in the course of rehearsal and the course of dramaturgical work of like trying to make sure that everything was accurate, we sort of leaned into the sort of parable nature of the play. And we sort of wanted the tech company to be an allegory for all tech. You know, the, we went down the different roads with different companies. And we found ourselves being like, okay, like this is how this company works. This is how that company works. And like, we want to make sure we get it right. And then we were like, it's a play, it's fictional. The feelings resonate. This is the other 
Uh, it's somewhat of a spoiler, but it's not as sort of the major spoiler of the play is that Jane works as a content moderator, which is a job that works that exists across tech companies. So we wanted to let the audience know that, you know, it's not an attack on an individual company, more so uh, a statement about the negative uh, human consequences of of certain kinds of tech labor across across the industry and not just aimed at one company. That's right. Although you could choose any one company and they'd be um, there'd be plenty to complain about that one company's yeah. behavior. If if anyone wants to come to the show and project whatever company onto it, I'm I'm on board to be like, yeah, this is a statement against <laughs> that company in particular. I'm totally down. A few years ago, I had Sarah T. Roberts on Tectonic talking about her book Behind the Screen, talking about the the exploitation of content moderators who very often no do not. Oh, wow. Yeah, they they that role, as I'm sure you know, Max, um, is often filled by people who do not live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yes. Sometimes they live in uh, lower cost parts of the U.S., but most often they live in other countries, live and work in other countries where they are treated as third-party contractors and really um, disposable. Listeners can go back in the archives and listen to the whole thing about my thoughts and Sarah's thoughts about content moderation. But I thought it was really significant that here we have Job, a play that is, while the whole play is not about content moderation, Jane's role as a content moderator does play into into the play. It's it's central Definitely. to the play. Definitely. Um, one of the things that you mentioned a couple minutes ago is that she's in that office because she's had a mental breakdown. And I appreciated that and we won't get into the details, which there are some details mentioned during the play, but just on a, on a high level, you're helping to expose to people some of the mental health risks that come with a job of content moderation, in particular in tech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the hope. The, uh, the play emerged out of my own experience working in tech, which was a very circuitous, strange, backwards, accidental one where I worked for this company called Brud that built fictional influencers, uh, most notably an account called Lil Michaela, who I think now has over 2 million followers. But when I got hired, it was through, uh, I had met someone professionally for writing and they, um, I had made a fake Instagram as like a joke to sort of occupy my lonely brain in LA. And I showed it to this woman sort of randomly and she was like, oh, you should meet at this company, I thought it was like an art project because we were like, you know, making these fake women and like having them try on cool clothes. And like, sometimes like they'd be like hanging out with a real DJ and you're like, this is kind of cool. And then we did this big storyline, uh, this sort of metafictional storyline about her origin story and revealing that there was a fictional story where this character was actually a robot. And through that, someone did some digging or it got leaked or whatever. And it turned out to be a Sequoia capital backed startup, which I had no idea that was not disclosed to me when I started working there. And I began a year of working as a creative in quotes for this company, writing YouTube videos for them, writing captions and storylines and all this stuff. But a lot of what the job was, was sort of, for lack of a better term, like mainlining the internet and sort of keeping a pulse on what people were saying about the character, how people were interacting in the comments. 
And at one point I played two characters who were dating and I would get the, and then they broke up and I would, on the male account, I would get a comment being like, you're the worst. Like you should kill yourself. You're awful. And then I would switch to the female account and I would get a comment from the same person being like, stay strong queen. Like, I love you. And all of these millions of people were sort of responding to these characters, but it was coming to my phone in my apartment. And there was a day where we accidentally posted an unedited photo of one of the characters. So we used human models and we would composite, um, we'd essentially like animate onto them. And my coworker sent me an unedited photo. I didn't look at it and I posted it. It was up for like three seconds. It was like this huge thing. And I had to spend no, not being hyperbolic, legitimately 24 hours on the internet. I didn't sleep that night just spamming comments of people being like, we saw your real face, like you're exposed, whatever. And it's a very long-winded way of saying the play really came out of that one night of what it is to actually experience the total overload of the internet, A, for your job, for your profession, uh, B, for something that categorically, I bear the company no real ill will, but you know, in terms of the larger world, doesn't really matter, you know, that I was chiseling my mental health to a to a bit because why because we didn't want people to talk about how these weren't actual robots like of course they're not so it was a very strange time and i i was i became obsessed with the tech mindset and how the company was pitched and we talked so frequently i'll i'll retract that i bear them a little ill will just because i think it's kind of <laughs> stupid but um you know we talked frequently about how we were helping people and how these characters could be forces for good and they could represent all these social causes. And um, it came to a head one day when our CEO gave this sort of investor pitch, like the thing that he said to people to raise money. And it started with him going, uh, Jesus, Muhammad, who are these, if not like the original influencers? And I was just dying laughing. And uh, I think it, yeah, I was just, I became super interested in, in this, sort of modern conceptualization of labor that I think really begins in the tech sector where you you have to be helping people and what you're doing has to have, you know, be objectively good uh, rather than just like, hey, we're making these goofy characters because like we want to make money and like we want to tell a cool story, which I think is like totally valid. But it had to be like, you know, we're going to we're going to make these like social justice influencers who are going to change the world. <laughs> That's a fascinating story, I have to say. So Lil Michaela, was it Lil Michaela and her boyfriend that broke up? Was it that? No, character? it was um, uh, It was Bermuda is Bay was one of the other characters. And then Blocko 22, who was my my baby. I loved that character. Um, and they, they dated and then broke up. So Job comes off of that 24-hour period of your essentially being the content moderator, you're fielding all of the emails and online comments um, that came off of that, th just that three second exposure exactly. of the model's face. So did the people who were posting comments and sending emails, did they understand that these were just for kicks, you know, that these are just characters or were they somehow projecting real people in a real relationship? How, how seriously were they taking it's a great question. I think the job, that job sort of 
showed me the limits of like scaling interesting storytelling on the internet, at least in like a digitally native format, because we talk about like levels. We talked about game theory a lot and like the levels of engagement and like the kinds of players that we were, I'm someone is going to obliterate me in your comments or whatever, but I know in like game theory, sometimes there's like the notion of like the ruiner or someone who is like sort of bought into the world of something, but is also in it to like, mess up the experience for other people. So we had some people who were sort of cosplaying along who were like, I don't care that you're a robot, you're whatever, you know, who knows, those might've been 10 year olds who thought it was real. It felt to me like people who, you know, were sort of invested in the story and were like sort of playing with us. And that was really beautiful and cool, legitimately. My sort of storytelling background, I started as a kid doing uh, LARPing in upstate New York at a camp called the Wayfinder Experience. So like the basis of my interest in narrative like comes from this kind of thing. And like the people who were playing along with the characters, it was like super beautiful and cool. Then there were people who were playing along, but being like, this sucks, this is fake, I want to ruin it. Then there were people who like thought they were detectives who were like, clearly this isn't real. It's definitely, you know, a real model who's doing this for attention. Very few people were like, this is a startup that has 40 employees. But when I say it showed me the limitations, this was at a time where it was when Quibi was getting going and Hollywood, there was like this obsession with like, oh, oh, everyone wants like short form content. And the problem is you can't tell a cogent, not centralized story to people in the Philippines and New York and Quebec at the same time. It, it taught me that internet storytelling was not going to take over Hollywood. And I truly believe that it's not. I think that there are interesting things happening on social media with narrative stuff, but we were really in the belly of the beast of like trying to do something high level interesting and sort of creating levels of story engagement. So it was really, it was really fascinating for a while, that element of it. And it just kind of came undone as a result of being a VC backed startup, which is you can't do, they don't want you to do anything that is interesting or takes that amount of time. <laughs> right. One connecting point that I'm detecting, I think, between your, was it called Brud? Was the Brud? B-R-U-D. Yeah. <laughs> great name. Yeah. Great name. Between Brud and your play job, specifically the, the character of Jane, is that in your role as storyteller and then sometime content moderator, you're the connection point between the VC's dreams of scalable entertainment and vast riches and the consumers of this narrative content. And it, it seems like you must have been really stretched because here you have the, the clueless investors who are talking about Jesus and Muhammad as influencers who have no idea what narrative is really or if it's going to work online. You're trying to make it work both for their business model that they've set up but also for this global audience that has a range of responses, and some of which are people taking this all too seriously. If that's right, then I, I noticed a similar kind of stretched out feeling in the character of Jane that maybe contributed to her mental break in the play. Um, I think that's a really apt, astute observation. I think the character in the play deals with a similar conundrum of what must be done and what is right or what, you know, what is, what is 
they're an obligation to do versus like, what does an individual sort of actually want? And I think that that, I, I think that there's a lot to be said between that sort of moral conundrum and the relationship between like fandom and VCs, where both are incredibly invested in a property, but in radically different ways. I think our VCs, like when you're dealing with a firm that big, and I, you know, don't want to talk like I have any experience with this or like really know how it works, but it almost felt it was like extreme investment, but also like profound indifference because like they're not, they, they're taking a flyer on us. I mean, however much money they're putting in $5 million, whatever, it's nothing to them. So they would sort of, it felt like they would glance at it every now and then and be like, oh, this isn't working. But like ultimately like didn't care. I mean, like they sort of let it go way longer than I would have expected. As you said or alluded to earlier, there, there's no desire for quality or good storytelling in your case or to create something meaningful or, or actually helpful for the audience or the consumer. Again, to, to return to this point, you have the business model, which is growth at any cost, exploit whoever you have to exploit. You know, let's just see if we can get even more rich. That's what the investors are saying. And then in the middle, you have uh, among other roles, you have content moderators who are trying to clean up the mess that the business model by design creates. Um, this is what came up in my interview with with Sarah T. Roberts, is that the content yeah. moderators are cleaning up this mess, that the scalable algorithmic amplification of Google and Facebook create by design. And so you have people like your character, Jane, and, and your play job, who inevitably face mental health issues. What I found interesting in the character of Jane is that she did not come into the office. I don't think this is a spoiler. She doesn't come into this office complaining about the company. To the contrary, she, she seems, loves the company. She loves yeah. it. And she's proud of the work she does. And she's intent on getting back in so that she can continue to help people, she says. She wants to help people. And she sees her work within the bowels of this horrible big tech behemoth, whichever one you want. She sees her role as a noble calling, and she has assigned her personal identity fully to this role as content moderator. Do you, have you talked to content moderators who work within big tech? And is that a kind of attitude that you've seen in in real life content moderators? Um, yes and no. The the initial impetus of the play, like the very spark of the idea was I, I briefly met a content moderator in San Francisco when I was visiting a friend of mine from college. It was her roommate. She just seemed like she was having a really awful time. Um, I've met subsequently a couple content moderators at shows just sort of by accident, by fortune. That exact attitude has not been reflected to me. I think what Jane's attitude is more emblematic of is a way that I really sympathize with a lot of tech workers who I think have been fed a, a dream that is sort of impossible, where I, they're not by no means the most persecuted uh, workers in the world. Um, and they are not blue collar workers, but they also, I think a lot of, I know so many people who worked for these big companies straight out of college because it was paying more than anyone else. And they are such, the bigger ones are such behemoths that you aren't, your relationship with your work is really strange where it feels like 
through the sort of perks that exist and the yoga rooms and the, the, the bus and the food, it feels like they're individuating you in order to sort of separate you from the larger machine in which you operate. So I'm, I'm just really, I'm really obsessed and, and interested in this sort of collective trick that seems to be like a part of how a lot of big tech companies operate, which is making people feel you know, like they're kind of working at the center of the universe. And so I think Jane, Jane's attitude, again, is sort of maybe the parts of the play that feel more like a, a parable or more like we're trying to get at something about, about tech. But we've also talked to a lot of, a number of people who come to the show who are work at smaller places and are, are have gotten laid off in the past year. Um, we talked to a, a young guy who had been laid off twice in the last six months from different from different tech companies. So it's all, you know, sort of the, the buy and bust of it all, this sort of fast rise and fall that is incredibly attractive to people my age and, and younger uh, in such uncertain times and in such an uncertain economy. So all that's to say, I also, I think that part of the success of the play, as strange as it is, is I think we're, we're representing part of the labor force, a big part of the labor force that doesn't really see itself on stage that often, or that is also hopefully represented with both sympathy and empathy while also calling attention to, you know, the sort of hypocritical nature of some of the intrinsic, intrinsically hypocritical nature of parts of their work. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Max Friedlich, who's the playwright of a new play that's playing in Manhattan right now. It's called Job. It's playing at the Soho Playhouse to sold-out audiences. There is a link to the play on the playlist if you go to WFMU.org click playlists and comments and uh, there's a mailing list and there's some suggestions there about how you can get on a, uh, on a list of people who can maybe get into the show day of. Max talks a little bit a lot about that later in the interview. You can also go to the playlist to join in the live listener comments if you'd like. We have a good conversation going there. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Max Friedlich here on Tectonic on WFMU. Yeah, I think it's significant that we have an off-Broadway play that is selling out every night that features a big tech content moderator. (laughs) It's one of the two characters. I mean, even an off-Broadway play that is questioning the ethics of big tech at all. I can't think of another play that has done this, certainly not one that is getting the attention that, that yours is, is deservedly getting. Have you heard from other people in tech about their reactions to the show, or what's the general reaction you're getting? From the tech community, if we want to call it that, you know, the word community being one of the more overused words in our social lexicon, but the New York tech community uh, has responded super positively and has been super supportive. And it's been 
great to talk to people after shows. It's I, I no longer go to every show now that we're open. And the thing that I miss the most is getting to talk to the tech people legitimately. Because again, there is this sort of representational element of people. It's just a huge swath of the modern workforce that just sort of doesn't get dramatized in this way. Um, I'm like trying to be so careful not to like portray them as an oppressed class of people because they're of course legitimately not. But yeah, the the response has been super warm by and large. I'm also, you know, if there if there is negative stuff out there, I'm probably the last to hear about it. But yeah, it's been super, it's been super surprising and interesting. And I legitimately loved having tech folks come up to me afterwards and share their experience. I talked to someone who worked on the bots that do a good amount of the content moderation at Google. Someone who was one of the original designers of those bots and those algorithms was at the show and she had amazing insight and got to speak to our lead actress, Sydney. And uh, so all of that has been really cool. I mean, we're we're sort of making a play about about them that is also sort of critical of that world. And it's been super gratifying to have those folks be like, yeah, I think there's something here that resonates for me or there's some element of my experience that is being revealed here that I don't often get to see. So again, super humbling, super gratifying to hear from those people. Is is this your first play? You mentioned you're 26. You're uh on- what that was I was referring referring to myself in the past. I am 29 now. I'm oh right gosh. Oh you got old. Sorry. So at 29, this is a great start. I mean it must be near your first. Um I had a play my first sort of any sort of semi-professional venture into playwriting was in 2012. I had a play at the New York Fringe Festival when I was 17. So I've been writing plays and trying to produce plays for the better part of 10 years. No, sorry, not not the better part of 10 years, a full 11 years. Uh, it is my first play on this scale, on this level, first play off Broadway, certainly the first play where I've had this caliber of actor and this caliber of collaborator and producing team and director and all of that. So in many ways, it's, it is that funny thing of being very much a first thing and sort of a launching pad and also something that is a decade in the making. I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking about the generational divide. Apart from all the big tech content moderator stuff, the difference between the generations and your two characters is the source of much of the play. As you said at the beginning, the um, psychotherapist Lloyd is a baby boomer, whereas Jane, the content moderator, is millennial. Listeners are probably familiar with the memes or the chatter online that millennials will say things about boomers. The phrase, okay, boomer, uh, got popular a few years ago. One thing I liked about this interplay between these two characters is that they were both trying to tell the truth about the other's generation. I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but I, I appreciated how you're you're on the millennial side, and yet you were able to write the character of an ex-hippie boomer really telling the millennial, not in such harsh words, but essentially what's wrong with your generation? How are you able to get both sides of that conversation? I think it's just about, I mean, if there's an art form, I mean, that's sort of the nature of the art form is you really have to believe or understand the different points of view. And in the case of sort of the 
intergenerational conversation that happens in the play. I happen to agree with, you know, I, I don't like to tip my hand too much in terms of like what I actually think, but I think a lot of the points made in either direction in the play are things that I really agree with. I mean, I think it's encapsulated They in the play, they talk about the issue of affordable housing in San Francisco. Jane raises that it was old hippies who are sort of obsessed with aesthetics and, you know, want to keep the row houses in San Francisco looking pretty and pristine, really, you know, limiting housing laws that make it hard for people to build new affordable housing. At the same time, it's the tech workers, the people in Jane's generation who are coming in and, you know, are the sort of boots on the ground gentrifiers of San Francisco. And so that is just a legitimately interesting gray area debate to me of of who is at fault in these situations and are we just pitting different groups against each other who both legitimately just want to live in nice neighborhoods and have their kids go to nice schools and not be kicking anybody out or doing any harm? Are we pitting these groups against each other that sort of want the same things in in favor of big real estate, big tech, all of these bigger forces that govern our world? So I think it was about trying to find places in both directions where I was like, I, I see that point and trying to address issues that I don't necessarily have the answers on. Because I think that that is dramatically interesting. It was interesting. And I think you did the right thing by having those two characters expose those tensions uh, in their conversation. But as for who has the answers, I don't know. If if you want to do a revision of the play at some point, you, you need to add a third character. Um, you could always add someone from Gen X. I'm just saying, you know. Yeah, totally. Because... Boomers and millennials have been going at it and going at it for five to 10 years now. And those of us in the completely overlooked generation of Gen X have been sitting here the whole time saying, we know how to moderate this discussion. And no one ever asked for our opinion. Sorry, I'm going on a little rant right now. I'm just saying, if you've got to have somebody to give you the, the way forward, just look for somebody who was born right in the very trough, that demographic trough of Gen X, somebody born in 1972. I'm just saying, I don't have any particular suggestions, but just anybody, anybody <laughs> who might be talking to you right now from 72. Yeah, we could, uh, yeah, we could change the setting of the play to like a modest mouse concert and, <laughs> and, and get some of that in there. Or just have a Gen Xer pop his head in once in a while and just go, Oh, whatever. And just leave. Great. I'm sold. I'm on board. <laughs> See, revision or sequel. I'm, 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 I'm on board either way. Actually, I thought you could do, I thought you could do a sequel. This play is called Job. And I thought next time you could do a play about Apple and call it Jobs. Oh, Jobs. Uh, yeah. There you go. You know, like Alien, Aliens. Did, is that what the, is that what the Alien sequel was called? Was it Aliens? Yes. It was, wow. That's awesome. Apparently, James, James Cameron, he made the pitch by going to the whiteboard and writing alien. And then he said, here's what we're going to do. And he put a dollar sign at the end of it. Come on. Come on, Jimmy. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. That's one of the cooler. That's one of the cooler things I've heard in a really long time. Um, yeah, I would love to, I would love to make to make jobs. Well, Max, let's talk about how people can get to job. As I said before, it's playing at Soho Playhouse in downtown Manhattan. How can people go online and see whether there are any tickets left for upcoming performances and um, how long is the show going to be on for? 
Um, right now, as of the time of our recording, we're extended to October 15th, but we're going to hopefully add some shows after that. We are job the play on Instagram and job at soho.co on the internet. On both of those places, you can sign up for our mailing list, which will be uh, the easiest way to learn about new shows. Um, also on there is our ticketing policy. We now have like a standby line policy. We've had a pretty, there's pretty decent luck if people show up for our seven o'clock curtain at around 545, six and put their names down. We usually get, you know, five to 10 people in every night that way. So there are, there are definitely ways to see the show, even if, even when tickets sell out, we still have tickets on today ticks and, and rush tickets and things like that. And all that information is on our website and our Instagram. I don't want to jump the gun here, but what's the process for an off-Broadway show that does really well to become a Broadway show? That is a great question. I don't know if that is the ultimate goal for me personally. I've really relished in and enjoyed the success that comes with being independent, which allows us to have a lower price point. I think it also makes the show feel like something people discover and feel like they have some sort of there's sort of like an internet commerce thing to that. It's like, it, I, I hope the show can feel like how I felt like finding new music on, you know, free mixtapes.com and like datpiff.com or finding new streetwear at like weird places in the Lower East Side where you're like, you're finding this thing that you know isn't like individual to you, but like you kind of feel like, oh, like not everyone knows about this yet. So like, I really enjoy being independent, at least with this production. I think it's a really intimate show. I think smaller houses um, inform the show in a nice way. And we've had some videos about the show blow up on TikTok. And as a result, we have a lot of kids seeing the show. We have people who comment to us that this is like their first play. So all of that is really special and has been really wonderful. And as an art maker, all you sort of hope for is the maximum number of people seeing your thing. So I don't know if that's, I would love to find another home for it in New York. I would love for it to have a regional life of some kind. Um, all of that would be really special, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that I think that I've loved the discussion that the show has prompted. And I just want to share it with as many people as possible. The process of becoming a Broadway show uh, on on its most base level that I can answer that is we ran this show as a nonprofit and we would need to transition the show to being a for-profit show. So we would need for-profit producers and people who really, you know, see this as a way to make money. You know, this show was funded by tax-deductible donations. So that is the major transition. I don't know. I mean, I it's it feels really wild to even like be able to have that the tip of that conversation with a straight face. But I think we're all just trying to relish the moment knowing that, you know, our whole team was there a month ago when we were like painting the floors and sealing ourselves. And like all of our set is beautiful, an amazing sort of concise set design by our set designer, Scott Penner. But, you know, we did not have a lot of money that set costs. Like I won't say how much, but not that much money. And so to go from that to, to, all of the strength of our performers and the strength of our design team to do what we've been able to do with the resources we have is really special. And I sort of, my, my nearest instinct is to sort of honor that. And if we can do it one level above and um, hopefully work with the same designers and, and give them just a little bit more fodder to 
to execute their brilliance. You know, they were able to do what they did here with so little. I would love to be able to see what they do with a little bit more, but to take it to Broadway, I think would be a sort of uncharted territory. And I, uh, you know, it's kind of hard for me to picture, to be honest. I wouldn't say no. I wouldn't say no, by the way, to, to anyone, to all the, to all the Broadway money heads, um, to all the tech barons who hate listen to this program. Um, we will accept. I'm I'm open to it. Let's talk, baby. Let's talk. Let's let's cut a deal. I've heard that if you get a for-profit team of investors and producers, what is really helpful is if you get a virtual avatar to be an influencer. Yes. For the play, 100 percent brings it full circle. I did want to. My friend Cody Victor, who's an amazing filmmaker, who helped me make TikToks for the show. They're 19 years old. And I did have this idea, this like high-minded idea where like I would just have them be me and like have like a much hipper, cooler version of myself. So I did want to, I actually, my first instinct in marketing the show was I did want to make a real life uh, flesh avatar of myself off of, <laughs> off of my friend Cody. A flesh avatar. That's the new idea. That's going to be 2024. Forget AI. It's flesh yeah. avatars. Flesh avatars, baby. Get in on the ground floor. Again, I'm, I'm available. I'm taking meetings. Flesh avatar. Let's do it to the moon. Well, Max Friedlich, I, I really want to congratulate you on your success. And Thank you so I'm much. really looking forward to seeing your future successes roll out because I know there's going to be many of them. And I hope you'll come back to the show sometime Friends, go see the play Job at Soho Playhouse. And Max, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for having me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 16 minutes of the show. And then the great Dave Mandel comes in with his show called It's Complicated. It's a prog rock show. Hope you'll stay tuned for that. And then Bad Animals with Jim the Poet and Amanda. And then Brother Daniel Blumen takes us on to midnight, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern Time. So a lot of good listening coming ahead. I want to say thanks again to Max Friedlich for his time talking to me about his play Job. What a talent, right? At age 29, to, uh, to have accomplished this already. I'm serious. I'm looking forward to hearing what he does next. And uh, if it has anything to do with tech, hope he'll be back on the show. Uh, again, you can find the link to the website with information about the play uh, at the playlist, wfmu.org. Click Playlists and Comments. And if you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and find the October 2nd, 2023 show and click the Playlist link. And depending on how far in the future you are <laughs> and what happens with the play, Maybe it's still running, you know, in, in the year 2025, and, and Job just keeps running and running. It's like the new Fantastics. Uh, and you can, you can 
you can see uh, what what the ticket policy is in that year. Anyway, that was I'm really glad that Max was on the show and I could share with you some of the experience of, of going to the play, which, as I said, was thought-provoking and brings to light a part of the tech industry that deserves to get more attention. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about content moderation and maybe one or two of the links that I've put on the playlist. But first, before I forget, and before we uh, run out of time, I want to say something about this October fundraiser that we've got going on at WFMU. It's called the Hellraiser. We do this every year uh, for the month of October. And what we're encouraging people to do is just pitch in a little bit um, because this this is how we fund this is how we get funds for the rest of the year the operation for the radio station for the balance of the calendar year you know we have a, a, a spring fundraising marathon and that's um, super important and we get a lot of funding and then when it comes around to October things always look a little bit lean and we just want to make a quick um, invitation for listeners and supporters who love this station to pitch in a little bit. And here's how you do it. You go to WFMU.org, and there is what we call Pledge Widget, the, uh, the dog and the cow. You just click on them, and you put in some amount, and then you get to choose the swag that you want. I mean, it's a great deal, actually. There are two T-shirts that you can get um, just for this October fundraiser. Uh, one of them is the Get Hooked t-shirt by Love and Victory, and the other one is the Cycloptopus t-shirt by Kaz, which actually was originally designed in the 1980s, and now it's it's back, and this is the first time the station has done it as a, as a t-shirt. So you can um, put in, put in uh, 100 clams and get both of the t-shirts plus a DJ Premium, and uh, if I could recommend a DJ Premium, it would be the album that Scott Williams and I put together for you <laughs> called The Simple Desultory Tectonic, which uh, the first four songs of are um, our take on Simon and Garfunkel, except we rewrote the lyrics to be all about surveillance. Uh, and then there's a bunch, I think, uh, 12 other songs uh, to round out the album. They're all surveillance-related songs that I've played on past shows. So if you if you put in a hundred bucks, make sure to click the one DJ Premium uh, checkbox so that you can get. This is your last chance, as far as I know, to get my album uh, from from this year. So uh, yeah, we're trying to raise three hundred forty thousand dollars, and we're going to do it um, pledge by pledge by pledge. As always, we rely on you, the listeners. You don't hear advertising. Um, you know, you don't we, you don't hear us taking underwriting breaks. We just come on. Uh, in October with a little brief invitation for you to do this. So thanks for, for thanks in advance for doing that. And everyone who's part of our monthly donor program called Swag for Life, thank you for continuing to support us in every month. Uh, really, really appreciate it. So that's my pitch for um, Hellraiser. Hope to see hope to see my pledge count go up a little bit. It's at four right now. Anyway, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. I want to say something about content moderators before we, uh, I got to clear out of here and Dave Mandel comes in. Boz from the Netherlands, a longtime listener. Thank you, Boz. Uh, and a longtime supporter of, of WFMU wrote on the comment board during Max Friedlich's interview, what is a content moderator? And I'm so glad he asked because I, now that I think about it, I don't think 
Max or I ever gave a, a, a summary description of what that job role is about. Um, there is a link on the playlist to my interview a few years ago with Sarah T. Roberts, and we get into um, much more detail. We, there's a whole interview about content moderators uh, from September 16, 2019. It's, uh, the link's on the playlist. You can, you can listen to that. But, but just as a, as a brief summary, comp- big tech companies are dealing with tons and tons of content that gets generated. In the case of um, a company like Facebook or Google, in particular YouTube, they have user-generated content. People are uploading a bunch of stuff. I mean, just just unbelievable amounts of stuff all the time are being um, uploaded, and it gets posted right away after going through just a, a lightning-quick check, usually by an algorithm. Um, and if if the algorithm is not sure whether to take it down, they'll send it over to a human moderator, and then the human moderator has to decide whether to take it down. This is, as far as I understand, this is after the content is already up. So things get flagged for content. And what that ends up meaning is that human moderators have to, they, they are forced, I mean, th- this, is, this is their job, they're forced to watch the absolute worst kinds of uh, video content that you can possibly imagine, it's pr- and it's probably worse than that. It's pros- probably uh, worse than you can possibly imagine, is what they have to watch day in and day out. Um, so I have this, uh, I have a couple of uh, stories from The Guardian, just from uh, August, just from uh, a few weeks ago. There's this Kenyan group of moderators that are employed by a company called Sama, Sama is a Californian country, a company that uh, subcontracts to companies like Facebook to bring in uh, human moderators from all over the world to view this horrible content. And um, there are uh, moderators that are now alleging, which I completely believe, that they're suffering um, mental health issues because they have to watch this horrible stuff. They're, they're being paid very, very little um, and there's little to no mental health care on site. So from August 16, there's a story fr- in The Guardian um, that I'll just read you this, this one paragraph. Daniel Motong, who was hired as a Facebook content moderator by Summit in 2019, and this is uh, Mr. Motong lives, in, lives and works in Kenya, in Nairobi, I believe. So Motong was hired as a Facebook content moderator in 2019, filed a lawsuit against both companies, both Facebook and Sama, alleging that he had been exposed to graphic and traumatic content without adequate prior knowledge or proper psychosocial support, which he said left him with post-traumatic stress disorder. There's another article from August in The Guardian. um, Moderators also working for Sama, and they, this is a contract with OpenAI, which is Sam Altman's company that makes ChatGPT. That's one where the content is um, not being initially, it's not being immediately uploaded by users, but it's the ChatGPT language model that's just hoovering up all kinds of horrible garbage all over the internet to churn up into its, um, into its little text extrusion engine that I've talked about in past shows. The, this is the Guardian article. The 51 moderators in Nairobi working on Sama's open AI account 
were tasked with reviewing texts and some images, many depicting graphic scenes of violence, self-harm, murder, rape, necrophilia, child abuse, bestiality, and incest, the petitioners say. And so you can imagine, and this is just 51 moderators in Nairobi, you have to multiply that by some unimaginably large number to get your, just to wrap your arms around the scale of this problem, how many moderators there are, often in um, countries that, that may, you know, may be low cost. And so uh, the moderators are being paid very little. These moderators in Nairobi are saying they were paid between $1.46 and $3.74 an hour to watch all of those horrible, horrible scenes. And um, Facebook's response was basically, hey, it's not our problem. They work for Sama, not us, which is their, uh, which is their strategy, of course, is to push the problem, to, to push the externalities onto uh, vulnerable communities all over the world, out, you know, outside the, the headquarters of Facebook, let someone else deal with it. And as I, as I uh, told, as I brought up to Max, the entire Facebook business model, the entire YouTube business model, the entire OpenAI business model requires enough content to make these, these models and the algorithms work that really they depend on, in a way, they depend on this horrible information uh, these horrible scenes, so that they can get at occasionally something that is uh, not awful. And the only way for these companies to survive at all, to make their margins and to uh, achieve their growth at any cost, is to, f is to exploit these laborers in these uh, vulnerable places all over the world. So it's, co it's completely rotten and unethical and disgusting. And uh, that is what this play job is touching on is the reality of, uh, of lives and, and workplaces all over the world that are hidden from us by design by these toxic, unethical companies. And um, look, that's about all the time I have for this evening, but thanks for sticking with me. And I want you to stay tuned for uh, Dave Mandel and It's Complicated. By the way, we're going to go out this evening, not to a song, but to something that is spoken word by, I thought it'd be fun to hear from Lil Michaela. This, um, <laughs> this AI influencer uh, that, uh, that um, was from Brud, I guess. Uh, it's not marked as coming from Brud. It's just coming from Lil Michaela. And this is, the, this is one of the characters that Max's team worked on a few years ago. And she's, she, she, it is still going strong, I guess, getting all the, the followers that he mentioned. So we're going to hear Lil Michaela giving a highlight of 2021. It's from a couple of years ago, the top 10 things, something like that. Uh, I want to remind you, you're listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And I'll see you next time, friends. Have a good week. On this week's episode of My Life is in Shambles, Sci-Fi Edition. I'm bringing you the top 10 moments from 2021, as chosen by a robot. Me. I'm the robot. So this year I turned 19, for the sixth time to be exact. Yes, I'm a robot, and no, I don't age, so birthdays are always kind of 
whatever. So for my birthday, my team at Bread gifted me a USB drive necklace loaded with all of my program memories. The keyword there is programmed. Literally changed my entire life. Have you ever been presented a USB necklace containing all of your past memories on it? That's right, my baby photo, high school boyfriend, my emo phase, they were all fake, just part of my code. Everything's weird, but around here, we call that normal. Also on that USB drive, a mysterious upgrade to my programming. The last time I got an upgrade, my whole face changed, so naturally I was so effing scared to install it. This time when I upgraded my programming, I got powers? Not in a magic kind of way, but I can control electricity. Well, kind of, sometimes. I haven't quite gotten the hang of it, but something crazy is happening. My eyes are basically mood rings now. They're red when I'm angry and purple when I'm, well, you know. Do I know what's going on? No, but that's never stopped me before. Quick pop culture break. Our fave queen Taylor took Petty to another level with a short film about a breakup. I've never felt so seen. I know a thing or two about obsessing over past relationships. I do it daily. I did it in a whole music video, twice. Also, Jake, give that girl back her scarf. Squid Game, duh. I watched the whole thing, twice. Holler at me player 67, I love you. We did it, y'all. Britney is finally free. And while some people were silent, ahem, extina, hashtag free Britney. All of her fans really came through for our girl, and now it looks like she's thriving. If I ever get hacked or something, y'all will come free me too, right? Speaking of freedom, linking IRL was kind of tough this year, but when we did get to hang IRL, it was iconic. I mean, the hottest teenage witch in Captain Marvel Jr., also, I got to meet Ariana Grande. She was a lot quieter than I imagined, but her ponytail was everything. I have a confession. Without y'all, I'd literally be glitching. Every time you voted to help me make a decision, like picking an outfit or deciding to reveal my crush, you were programming me. I don't know where I'd be without my community, so keep voting or my hardware might malfunction. So naturally, I released a series of NFTs way before all the bros caught on. I got to give out artwork to all of you new collectors and friends for free. I've been in the metaverse, sweetie. Do I have a crush? That's my business. But the answer is yes. You might know him as my friend boy. More on that to come, I'm sure. It's new and it's confusing. So like drop all your advice to new romance below. I'm clueless. Thanks for wrapping up 2021 with me. I'm so glad we made it through together. Stay tuned and remember to keep voting. This bot girl needs help navigating your world. And don't forget to recharge your hearts. the magical signal it's time for another episode of it's complicated the show comes to you every monday evening at 7 p.m i'm dave mandel the host of this show where we bring you a so-called hour of so-called prog and prog adjacent music thanks for joining me this week we're going to begin tonight's show with something from well, i was going to say an obscurity you sophisticated FMU listeners, to you sophisticated FMU listeners, it won't probably be quite as obscure, but this is a release, uh, we're going to hear a track from a release by the Peter Ivers Band, and this 
was a extreme, you know, unknown, obscure rarity and was rediscovered, probably reissued a while back, and now it's not quite so unknown, but still a great record. Peter Ivers was a musician based most of his career in L.A. and had some uh, some some fairly big fame. Is that, <laughs> is that grammatically weird? And he, uh, he did the music for Eraserhead. He hosted a TV show called New Wave Theater. I guess it was like a cable show or something uh, called New Wave Theater. But he had a group, and, and his music uh, varied a lot over the years. Like Some of his later records are much more pop and less remarkable, in my opinion. But we're going to hear a track from a sort of legendary album released by the Peter Ivers Band in 1969 called Night of the Blue Communion. I should also mention the most uh, interesting and saddest fact about Peter Ivers is that he was murdered at a pretty young age in, in Los Angeles in, I think, 1983, and the murderer was never found. The murder was never solved, so that's, that's sad, <laughs> unfortunate, obviously. We're gonna, so we're going to hear a track from the Peter Ivers Band. Again, uh, Night of the Blue Communion, 1969. This will be a track called Dark Illumination, sort of on the brink, as we often are on this program, between Psych and... Prague, Peter Ivers Band.
And that's something from the Peter Ivers Band, 1969. That album should be, you know, more or less findable these days in, in whatever your preferred format is. Peter Ivers Band. We're going to go on to something kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of, in the same vein, from a French group called Fille qui mousse, uh, like girl who, girl who foams up. Is that, would that be the, the correct English translation? Girl who foams, Fille qui mousse. They were a French band based in Paris, they put out only one record, which again, same same situation, pretty pretty obscure group that probably will not be obscure to you, sophisticates listening to this radio station, but really good group, and they were uh, fun fact. They were they were really really pretty unknown until they appeared on the so-called nurse with wound list, which I won't just Google it. I won't I won't uh, go into uh, detail what that is. But they were one of the obscure artists featured on that list, and I think that probably helped bring them to the attention of most of the world. So we're going to hear a track from the one album they released. Again,